0: Chapter 3, Guilt and Shame. Everyone struggles with guilt. We all wear fig leaves and hide our apple cores. Each of us lives in exile from Eden. Every one of us yearns to return home. Many roads beckon, but alas, lead nowhere. We should follow the sign marked grace. Grace is our way home. What is guilt and what causes it? Paul Tornier distinguishes between false guilt and true guilt in his book, Guilt and Grace. False guilts come from judgments of others. True guilts come from divine judgment or the violation of the innermost values of our heart and our morals. Healthy guilt strikes when we, number one, say or do something wrong. Number two, consider saying or doing something wrong. Three, fail to say or do something we feel is right to say or do or four, consider not saying or doing the right thing. Guilt erupting from sources other than these four is unhealthy and begs professional attention. False guilt or unhealthy guilt may be traced to childhood where a low self-image originates in relation to parents and significant others Healthy guilt, or true guilt, springs from the violation of an accepted standard. The purpose of healthy guilt are, number one, to serve as a warning, and number two, to motivate us. This warning serves notice that we're going against the value system instilled within us, our moral code, and it motivates us to amend our thoughts and behavior. Michael Lewis distinguishes between guilt and shame in his book, Shame, the Exposed Self. According to Lewis, shame is broad. Guilt is specific. Shame says, I am a bad person. Guilt says, what I did was bad. Like guilt, shame shame visits each human heart. Shame makes us want to hide, to escape from the piercing eyes of others, to disappear, or the ones that we've wronged. Adam and Eve provided an obvious example of individuals afflicted with shame. Their sin, realize they are naked, seek to cover their shame with fig leaves, then finally attempt to hide from God. When we violate a moral standard, shame finds us. We feel we're no good. We self-focus upon the self and pronouncement judgment unworthy. We continue to hide from those that care. Guilt inevitably produces fear. What we fear is punishment. Adam and Eve hid because they feared punishment from God. Cain feared retribution from others because he murdered his brother. Guilt may be resolved or unresolved. Left unresolved, guilt leads to the hardness of the heart, mean-spiritedness, aggression, anger, feel, resentment, and anxiety. Resolved guilt, on the other hand, leads to relief, an assurance of pardon, relaxation, joy, peace, security, especially for those towards whom have given it. How we choose to respond to guilt makes all the difference. We have two basic choices when we recognize our guilt, denial or confession. The biblical recommendation is clear enough when we compare the following passage. Behold, I will enter into judgment with you because I say I have not sinned. Then, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 1 John 1, 8-10 Old Testament Examples In the Old Testament, Israelite kings, Saul and David, illustrate respectively the wrong way and the right way to handle guilt. The Philistines assembled to fight the Israelites, bringing 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and warriors as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Saul waited in vain for Samuel, the prophet and priest, to arrive to offer God a sacrifice so he would be prepared for the inevitable battle. Being impatient, Saul took it upon himself to offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a practice reserved for priests only. When Samuel eventually arrived, he asked, What have you done? For a king to upsert priestly duties by leading in religious rituals was forbidden. Saul replied, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishka. I forced myself and offered a burnt offering, 1 Samuel thirteen eleven twelve. 12. Regrettably, Saul chose to ignore or rep- repress his conscience to justify his actions, and to blame others for his folly. The people Samuel and the Philistines were all to blame, not Saul. King Saul refused to take responsibility for his actions. You have acted foolishly, Samuel announced to Saul. At a later date, Samuel commanded Saul saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Go and strike Alamech and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 1 Samuel 15, 3. Saul indeed defended, defeated the Amalekites but Saul and the people spared Agad and the best of the sheep the oxen the flo- flo- fatlings the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed 1 Samuel 15:9 Once again the prophet confronted Samuel or Saul about his disobedience and declared, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord, Samuel responded. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowering of the oxen, which I hear? First Samuel 15, 13 through 14. Uh Uh-oh, Saul first disobeyed God, then misrepresented the truth and finally was caught red-handed. His response, the people took some of the spoils and the sheep and the oxen unrepentant. Saul again turned to his blamer, personality. Therefore, the prophet pronounced God's judgment upon the king. Rebellion is a sin of divination, and insubordination is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Thus Saul eventually lost the throne and was self-inflicted. King Saul illustrates the wrong way to handle guilt ignoring our conscience, justifying our actions by giving blame to others for our wrongdoing, all we rep- responsible to guilt, which lead to self-destruction. For if we continue to blame others for our guilt, and then it leads to self-destruction. The first couple is another example of individuals who modern an ill-advised pattern of response to guilt and shame in the garden. Adam blamed Eve, and maybe even God, the woman who you gave to me, be with to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Even bl- Eve blamed the serpent. Saul was not the first, nor will he be the last, to hide behind a blamer personality when confronted with his guilt. Like Saul, as with each of us, David asserted his own will over God, thereby sinning. In one of the best-known stories in the Bible, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. One spring during the time of war, King David sent his army off to battle. He, however, remained behind. One evening, David arose from his couch to enjoy a stroll on the roof of his palace. From his elevated walkway, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. Toying with his temptation, he dispatched a servant to discover her identity. Despite being married himself, Despite learning that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers, and despite his covenant to keep the Ten Commandments, which included a prohibition against adultery, David sent for Bathsheba and slept with her. When she became pregnant, David brought Ura in from battlefield under the pretense of desiring a report on the troops. David's solution to his dilemma was to have Yura sleep with Bathsheba before returning to camp in order to provide cover for the king's sin. Yura however, refused each opportunity to be with his wife on the consecutive nights, declining the privilege of being comfortable while his fellow soldiers slept in tents. David ultimately designed a successful plot for Ural's death in battle and married Bathsheba, amusing his cover-up and achieving its purpose. Not so. God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David and hopefully convict him of his sins of adultery and murder. The prophet of God told a tale, cleverly display, despised, to implicate David by appearing to his sense of justice. Playing the part of a righteous ruler, David unwillingly, unwittingly passed judgment upon himself. Guilty, cried David, of the wicked character that the prophet storied. You are the man, declared the prophet. How did David respond to his guilt? Not in the wrong way. Not by seeking to repress his conscience. Not by justifying his behavior or blaming others. I have sinned against the Lord, David confessed. The subscription attached to Psalms 51 designates the hymn as a Psalm of David when Nathan, the prophet, came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. According to Psalms, David prayed, O gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David's response to his guilt differs from Saul's radically. David is the right way to handle guilt. He accepted responsibilities for his actions, he recognized and confessed his guilt, he repented and received God's forgiveness. Consequently, Nathan announced, The Lord also has taken away your sins you shall not die. David prayed for renewal, begging, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Groaning in hope, David prayed, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's hope was no longer deceit, but in a deity. There is a right way and a wrong way to handle our guilt. In broad terms, denial is wrong. Confession is right. Denial leads to hell. Confession leads to heaven here and now and in the life to come. The difference in the deities of Saul and David may be traced to the manner in which each responded to his guilt. David accepted his blame and Saul did not. Saul was rejected by the, as a king by God. David was a chosen king by God to replace Saul. New Testament examples. In the New Testament times, the Pharisees were accurate in t- accurately in tune with sin and guilt. Rather than accepting their own sinfulness, however, they found it easy to project theirs onto others. So they took to the streets looking for evil easier than to face their own. Finding a woman to accuse of adultery, they managed to employ a mechanism of deflection, conveniently diverting attention, theirs and others, away from their own inequities. This slick move was called projection. Since we project our badness onto others, Jesus was not fooled and said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Among Jesus' disciples, guilt tortured both Judas and Simon Peter. Judas was unable to resolve his guilt before betraying Jesus, eventually committing suicide. Peter's guilt came from denying Jesus three times on the eve of the Lord's crucifixion, leaving Peter to live with his shame. After his death and burial, the resurrected Jesus came and stood among his disciples saying, Peace be with you. Peter saw him and heard him, but something remained unresolved between Peter and Jesus. Sometime afterward, perhaps not knowing what else to do, Peter announced, I'm going fishing. That's where Jesus found him, as before, by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Though their meeting meeting was awkward at first, at least for Peter, Jesus' forgiveness of Peter's thrice betrayal soon flooded his soul. Peter's guilt melted before his Lord's grace. The rock, which Jesus had foreseen in Simon from the start, became the reality in the years ahead as the forgotten disciple faithfully served the Lord, feeding his sheep. The rock in time even bravely followed his master into martyrdom. Another marvelous picture of Jesus's grace in the face of our guilt and shame is revealed in Jesus's parable of the prodigal son, according to the parable, a wasteful son had made a mess of his life in loose living in a country far from his family. Nonetheless, his loving father longed for the boy to return home. One day, the father saw his son coming in the distance, running to meet his son. The father embraced and kissed him. Soon, the father was giving gifts to his son and throwing a party with great rejoicing. All was forgiven grace was present. Jesus told the story in part to show how God, our Father in heaven, longs to shower us with his grace and forgiveness. Indeed, grace and forgiveness awaits every prodigal daughter and son coming home to grace. While awaiting trial, pickaxe murderer Carla Faye Tucker, a prodigal daughter, came home. Carla confessed her sins, repented, and received Christ as her savior. When I was forgiven and experienced forgiveness, she shared, it freed me inside to soar. I went higher and deeper with the Lord. My good friends, Mary Alice and Charlie Weiss, became like family to Carla. For for years, the Weisses have led a Bible study on Tuesday nights in the Mountain View prison unit for women in Gainesville, Texas, where Carla was incarcerated on death row. Mary Alice and Charlie once told me that Carla was one of the most radiant Christians they'd ever known. In Linda Storm's book, Set Free, the author quotes Mary Alice as saying, The thing that affects me most about Carla is the way she completely disarms people. With the love of God, I have never met anyone with such outright love for Jesus. Carla discovered that saving the saving truth of God's grace that John proclaimed when he wrote, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the is forgiveness for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. How do we get rid of our guilt and shame? First, we own it or confess it. Next, we remove ourselves from the source of our wrongdoing. We must remove ourselves from the source of our wrongdoing if we ever want to own our guilt and shame. Jesus illustrated this principle with the Sermon on the Mount when he taught, If your eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Matthew 5, 29, 30. What Jesus introducing, was Jesus introducing mutilation as a spiritual discipline? Hardly. Removing an eye or a hand cannot be removed. It's talking about the lust of the flesh within us, the sins that we are willingly to continue to to continue to. Cr- to continue to create in ourselves. Jesus was saying that we should separate ourselves from whatever causes us to do wrong or whoever causes us to do wrong. We should acknowledge the problem and take drastic action to correct it. Do what is right, not what is easy. The biblical word for correcting our sin problem is repentance. Repentance differs from confession. Confession acknowledges the problem. Repentance does something about the problem. To repent is to turn around and go a different direction. To repent is to turn from sin and turn to God. Since true guilt and shame result from unacceptable thoughts or deeds or behaviors or what the Bible calls sin, our problem must be dealt with at its source And return to wholeness. Owning our guilt and repenting, that is, removing ourselves from the source of our wrongdoing and turning to God are the first two steps on the road to our own peace and healing. But those two steps alone do not set us free. For true forgiveness and freedom, we need the wonderful gifts of forgiveness through God's grace. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted correctly that the last word with Christ is grace, but you can't speak the last word until you've spoken the next to last word. Guilty. Yes, it's true. We are all guilty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So we confess, we repent. Ah, but grace awaits We are forgiven as a gift by his grace through his redemption, which is Jesus Christ. Romans 3 24. Oh, happy day. Our guilt is washed away.